So good to have each of you, and I'm sure there's some other visitors here too, and uh, glad to have each one of you here today. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We are continuing our series on 1 Timothy, and we are actually in part 2, Christian Leadership part 2. I apologize, I think we had some uh, recording issues last week, I think, so I think the live stream worked, but I'm not sure if we were able to archive uh, last week's uh, message, so if you go to get part one, you may not get it. Uh, I apologize for that. Um, but anyhow, hopefully it'll work well today. There's a sound that no relay runner ever wants to hear. You can probably guess what it is. Ping. Ping, ping. At the 2008 Beijing Olympics, the United States men's and women's 4 by 100 meter relay teams dropped batons. They heard the pings of them hitting the track during a disastrous performance that prompted the chief executive of U.S. track and field to promise a comprehensive review of the entire relay program. Four years earlier, you might recall, in Athens, shoddy baton passing by the American men had allowed a British relay team to pull off an upset when the United States women were disqualified after a botched exchange. There have been similar troubles at the World Championships. On the surface, relay batons do not seem hard. You got a 12-inch cylindrical piece that is smooth and it's nicknamed the stick and the goal is to get that stick from one person to the next to the next to the next and get that stick around the track to win the race the spiritual analogy is this that we as leaders in the church as pastors as elders as deacons we have the stick And our responsibility is to run in such a way to hand that stick off to you. My responsibility is to preach and teach the word of God to hand you that stick so you can run with that stick and pass it on to your children and your children's children. And if we drop the baton, we lose it all. We absolutely lose it all. And so it is vital that we as leaders in the church carry the baton with passion, with the truth, with conviction, that we pass it on. And so today we're just going to uh, review a couple things, actually not really review, but I, uh, I came across uh, David Platt's commentary on First and Second Timothy and Titus, and he had four distinct points of the responsibility of elders, and I thought, well, rather than try to rewrite them and make them my own, why don't I just share his, because I mean... They're really succinct and easy to remember, and I want you to remember these. So let's look at these uh, together. Four responsibilities of elders. The first one is to lead under the authority of Christ. We have been given a responsibility to lead under the authority of Christ. We looked at this passage. Oops, let me back up here a moment. Uh, Acts 20, 28 to 31 Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Again, the Holy Spirit is the one who prompts people to be involved, should be the one involved in leadership. And so we don't just push ourselves into leadership. 
but we feel God leading us and guiding us because he's the one who has to guide the church. We as leaders are under the authority of Christ. We don't just usurp our own authority. And so we are under the authority of Christ to do what we do, the Holy Spirit hopefully leading us and guiding us in all that we do. Secondly, we are to care for the body of Christ as well, to care for the church of God. Here it goes on in this passage, to care for the church of God. It's right out of scripture, that's what we were called to do, which he obtained with his own blood. How do we care the way Christ did? What did Christ do? He gave his blood for the church. We give our lives for the church. We really should. Because why? He says, because false teachers are coming in to try to destroy God's church. So we as leaders have responsibility to protect and care for the flock. I use the illustration of a hen protecting her little chicks. That's the responsibility that we have. And God is going to hold us accountable for how we do that. It's a high calling that we are called to do. Number three, and now I'm going to mention these next two quickly, but then we're going to break them down and look at them. Number three, we are to teach the word of Christ. He says in 1 Timothy 3, 2, because we were working our way through the characteristics and qualifications for leadership, and he says at the end of 1 Timothy 3, 2, that we are able to teach. And so we teach the word of Christ and how important that is. And fourthly, we model the character of Christ. Remember I said last week, the highest goal in Christian leadership is to bring glory to God first and to bless the people of God. Bring glory to God and bless the people of God. Now we're going to go back to bring three and four uh, and talk about these extensively. Teach the word of Christ. He says that an elder is to be able to teach. He is to be able to communicate Christian teaching. There's a readiness and willingness to impart spiritual knowledge to those in his care. Now, not everybody is gifted to get up and stand and preach and give a message, but certainly an elder ought to be able to sit down with somebody one-on-one -on -one and counsel them and share them out of God's word if they're struggling with something in their life. You say, you know what, let me, let me share with you some passages that God has used in my life because he has wisdom and experience in the word of God saying, here, let me share with you some scriptures so you know how to do that. We should know how to disciple others in the word of Christ if we are leaders. We can apply the scriptures to help people in particular situations. And that is God's primary means. Listen, teaching the word of Christ is God's primary means for imparting his revelation to us. So it's vital. Notice we don't sit down and I don't break out Dr. Seuss and give all the little rhymes and let's get out the milk and cookies and let's break out Dr. Seuss and let's read that and learn the lines. No, it's not going to help me. It's not going to help you. I need words what Sharon played this morning. Wonderful words of life is what we need to be able to teach. Paul says this in Acts 20 verse 27. He's talking to the Ephesian elders. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. When Paul says, I didn't shrink from that, he says, I didn't hesitate. I didn't show uncertainty. I declared to you the whole counsel of God. 
I will tell you that's quite a statement because as a pastor, there are times you would just like to come to a passage of scripture, and some people do this, they just kind of cut it out of their Bible, <laughs> or they just skip over it and they don't preach about it. Why? Because it's going to be offensive. It's going to hurt people. It's going to step on their toes. And they, well, let's just skip over that. Paul says, I declared the whole counsel of God. And that's what we're called to do uh, as elders, as leaders in the church. So we need to do that. And the whole counsel of God is his purpose, his plan, and his will need to be communicated. This teacher is a servant. A servant. I, I asked the guys the other night in our elders meeting, I said, how will we know when somebody is ready to be an elder at Bethesda Church? And I said, the answer is this, when they are acting like an elder without the title. That's how you know somebody's ready for leadership. They are leading and serving the body of Christ without a title. It's vital that they are a servant of Christ. He doesn't teach just with his words. He teaches with his life. His example, his testimony. He points people to Christ. He doesn't argue with people who might disagree with him. He can certainly debate with someone because he knows what he believes. And I don't think there's anything wrong with debating with someone with the right spirit. Paul debated with people at Mars Hill about what they believed. And I think that's a good thing to do with the right spirit. He tells us in 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but he's able to teach. This servant is a good servant. He will be constantly challenging people to live for God and teach them what God's word says. In 1 Timothy, if it comes up, there it is, 4, 6, he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So this person is a servant. Secondly, this person is a student. The teacher is a student as well. He handles God's word carefully and skillfully. He studies God's word to apply it to his own life. Look what Paul writes to Timothy in his second letter. Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. When he talks about rightly handling the word of truth, he's talking about someone who can cut the word of God straight. Now, if you were building something and you were trying to cut a board, you want somebody who can cut straight. You don't want me. Okay? I'm probably not going to cut it straight. That's not my gifting or ability. But to teach the word of God in such a way that people understand it, to cut it straight, to share it straight with people and not deceive them in any way is so important. And that we are a student. Years ago, I was teaching a class on Wednesday night um, and, and on leadership of all things. And in that class, we had a small group of people and I was co-teaching with another uh, a, a guy in our church, a lay person. And I found it interesting, when he was up teaching, I was taking notes of everything he was saying. And I thought he had some very good things to say. 
And I was glad to have that opportunity to teach with him. But it was interesting, I noticed when I got up to teach, he never wrote down a single note. I mean, he just had his arm propped up and he's just like, I'm like, wow, I guess he knows everything and more than what I know. So it was just interesting that his attitude was not as a student. Um, and it's important that we are students. We help people understand God's word. In Nehemiah 8, verse 8, it says they read from the book, from the law of God clearly and gave the sense so that people understood the reading. Now, what are we to teach? This is crucial because there are a lot of people who skip over this as well. We are to teach the gospel. I want you to do a little survey when you watch somebody on television or you listen to a podcast or whatever you listen to. Do they include the gospel and what is the gospel? Because I've listened to some people on television and I never hear them share the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. His life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. They never talk about it. They never share about the cross or repentance. And what does Paul say? He says, I want to remind you in 1 Corinthians 15, brothers of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. Listen to this carefully. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Now, when something is first of importance, how often should you talk about it? A lot. <laughs> A lot. And so if it's of first importance, he says, I deliver this to you. What is of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. One of the things you will hear me do by God's grace, every funeral, every wedding, opportunity is to share the gospel. Some people will never hear the gospel apart from a wedding or a funeral. And I'm so thankful that my mentor trained me, you share the gospel every opportunity you get. It's vital. If we're going to teach and train the next generation, we have better be communicating the gospel. It's a life-saving, changing message that will change people's lives. You know, it's great that we have classes at Bethesda that teach parenting and parents how to raise their children. It's great that we have couples getting a better handle on their finances through financial peace. Those are great classes and have great information. Or we can discuss how to resolve personal conflict but all of this teaching should result in promoting the gospel. In other words, I handle my finances better so I can give more money to the church to advance God's kingdom. I raise my children better. Why? So they will grow up and be good representatives of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I handle conflict so there's unity in the church. And that unity in the church spreads the gospel of Christ. That's what it's all about. And whatever message or book of the Bible we're teaching out of it points all back to Christ. The Old Testament is pointing to Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that we need to be teaching and preaching. We teach the gospel so people hear the gospel and believe the gospel. Here's what Paul said in Romans 10, 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We are to persuade people to believe the gospel. That's our role. That's our job. One-on-one. We not only teach the gospel, but we teach from a spirit of love as well. Philippians 1.15, some indeed preach Christ of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. He says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. We teach from a spirit of love to build up the body of Christ. That's where it comes from, a spirit of love. Ephesians 4.12, we equip the saints for the work of ministry. Thirdly, we teach to correct those who are in error as well. In 2 Timothy 2.25, he says, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. We admonish and we warn and we counsel people. And I can tell you one of the most difficult parts of the job of a pastor is warning somebody of decisions or direction of their life. That's the part I probably like the least, (laughs) is having to tell someone, you know, you're heading down a, a, a terrible path, a wrong path, a destructive path. But you know what? I have to, out of love and out of concern for their soul. And hopefully that comes through. I came across this quote uh, in regard to teaching, and I, I really like it. I hope you will maybe jot it down and think about it and take it to heart. We teach what we know. We reproduce who we are. So our teaching is really coming out of our life, who we are, everything that we do in our behavior, which takes us right into the fourth point. What is it? We teach the word of Christ. What was number four? We model the character of Christ. All of these characteristics that are given here, we talked about, about being an overseer, above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. All these things are modeling the character of Christ. See, if we only look at these individual things and what we do or don't do, and we put on this list of do's and don'ts, we've missed the point. We are to model the character of Christ, not only as leaders, but as Christians. This list is, yes, it's given to leaders, but guess what? God's, that list goes to all Christians as well. So let's move on. Last week, we finished with hospitable. So we talked about able to teach. Look at the next one. Not given to drunkenness, not a drunkard. Boy, here's popular teaching, right? People talk about this in the pulpit. Not addicted to wine. So what is the biblical responsibility of a leader in relationship to alcohol? He should not have the reputation of a drinker. You say, well, does that mean he shouldn't drink at all? Well, I'm going to look at five principles, and you decide. 
It's a conviction between you and the Lord. I would, I would say the scripture, there's no scripture in here that definitively says a person should never drink alcohol. And you're like, oh, I can't believe he said that. But let me put a little asterisk right next to that and say, listen to the next five principles, though, before you decide whether or not it's a good thing. Okay? So bear with me. Not a drunkard. Isaiah 28.7. Write it down. Isaiah 28.7. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. Why? Because their mind was impaired by strong drink. Guess what? If I don't take strong drink into me, I have no fear of ever being controlled by strong drink. Isaiah pointed out the devastating effects of wine and how it clouded the minds of the priests and the prophets. Now, in the first century, most people drank wine because it was a common drink. They didn't have good water to drink. Don't be consumed with wine so that it impairs your judgment. The abuse or incessant use of it, I think, is what Paul is referring to in this passage. Someone who's always seen with a bottle, he has an addiction. It's a person who overdrinks and sits too long at his wine. We also don't abuse strong drink. He tells us that we are to be filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, we're not to be under the influence, the control, and the power of alcohol. We are to be under the power, the control, and the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Is the Holy Spirit encouraging me in that activity? For me, no. I don't drink. I've never drank. I won't drink. Why? Because the scripture says so. You can probably find a loophole that, fine, it's okay, but I haven't found a good reason to do it. Not at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. When I even look at things like this, there was a recent study ranked among alcohol as the most harmful drug among a list of 20 other drugs. The study released in a British medical journal claimed that alcohol was even more dangerous than crack and heroin when assessed for its potential harm to the drug taker and those harmed by his drug taking. It goes on to say hardcore drugs like heroin and crack cocaine and crystal meth are the deadliest drugs. But when researchers analyzed other important categories, the addictive nature of the drug, how it harms the body, the drug's role on society, such as tearing families apart, alcohol far exceeded all the other drugs in terms of overall harm. The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism has noted the harmfulness of alcohol abuse. Do you know what price tag they put on alcohol abuse? Nearly $235 billion on the annual bill in the United States for medical, social, and economic cost of alcohol abuse. That's significant, isn't it? In 2008, 
Five million people participated, listen, in addiction programs because of alcohol or drug abuse. 12 to 17 year olds, there was 5% of those 5 million. 18 to 25 year olds, 15%. 26 to 49 year olds, 57%. And 50 and over, 23%. Those are staggering statistics. One of the other things that we see with a lot of people in the United States is binge drinking. 17.1%, the number of U.S. adults who binge drink at least four times a month, that's 38 million people who binge drink. That's amazing. Here's another statistic, 80,000 Americans die each year from drinking-related causes, including drunk driving and suicide. You see, while one person can handle it, maybe the next person can't. And I don't want to be the result of their stumbling. Because there's a biblical principle at work with that as well. We don't abuse strong drink. He tells us in Proverbs 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. That's pretty clear in Scripture, I think. He tells us that we are to live for the will of God. So as to live, 1 Peter, the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He says the time past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That's where that kind of lifestyle can lead to. Now, there were times that I went out with friends who might have had a beer, and I had my Coke. And I never felt pressure to, I've got to do what they do. I was comfortable with who I was, and I think they were comfortable with who they were. But to me, it was a testimony. I'm taking a stand for Christ. And it's vital that we do that. Live for the will of God. Don't do things that causes your brother to stumble. It's another biblical principle. He tells us in Romans 14, 21. Oops, 14, 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So we don't do that. We avoid it. We stay away from it. Number four, bring glory to God in everything you do. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Are you doing it for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel? If you're not, then you probably shouldn't do it. And then I think there's another principle that is very important. And that is this. Don't hang out with people who abuse strong drink. Not regularly. Because you're going to be influenced in a negative way. And the Bible warns against it. Proverbs 23, 19. Hear my son and be wise. Direct your heart in the way. Here's what he says. Bible. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. 
For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. Wow, he even talks about gluttony. Now he's getting to meddling. Where we overeat is a person who overdrinks or the person who overeats. Which one's worse? I think they're both wrong, according to Scripture. He's telling us to have control of our appetites and what we do. So those are some principles that I think are important that we consider. And as you look at those and read over that list, what defense do you really have for alcohol is my question. And do you have a good defense? Well, he goes on. He says, also, not only not be a drunkard, but don't be violent. If we are going to show forth the character of Christ, we don't get into fistfights. I remember when I was a teenager, we were cleaning a restaurant. And we actually went in, and, and my dad did this because he had a small church, and he had to do work on the side. He had some cleaning places he cleaned. And we went into this restaurant on the weekends, uh, Friday night and Saturday night, at 2 o'clock in the morning. So it was really Sunday morning. We worked like 2 in the morning to 7 in the morning. And then we would get off and get a bite to eat and go to church and <laughs> be about asleep. Um, but it was interesting that one night we were in there cleaning, these two ladies got into a fist fight. And I'm like, you know, 14, 13, 14 years old, and they're rolling on the ground like a couple cats. It was the ugliest thing I've ever seen. It was embarrassing. And I thought, what in the world? And just the violence of people. And sometimes people in the church can be violent as well. Boy, they want their way and they're going to push and fight. And it's a horrible testimony. He says not to be a striker, one who gets into physical combat, a contentious person, a quarreler. I remember I went to, uh, um, back when the Cleveland Browns used to have a decent team, <laughs> okay, I, I went to an exhibition game, and the Browns and the Steelers were playing. Somebody bought me a ticket, so I went, and that was an eye-opener. I had never been, and we were down near the dog pound, they called it, at the end of the, at the end, of the end zone, and I think I counted about three fights in the stands. <laughs> because I think people were inebriated, drunk, and they were just out of control and they're just fighting. I'm like, why don't you put on a jersey and pads and get out on the field if you want to fight? Um, it, was, it was horrible. And it's horrible in the body of Christ as well. Leadership as well. What a horrible testimony when we show violence. He goes on to say that we should be gentle, gracious, Give room to people who have a different opinion. I don't have to have them embrace my idea. We can agree to disagree with a good spirit. We're merciful or tolerant of others who have a different opinion. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine: Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, and that should be flowing out of us all of the time. And the truth of the matter is, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't flow out of me all the time. There are times I have to apologize to people in my family, and I'm sure you have too. 
at least I hope you do, uh, it's vital that we represent Christ well. And when we don't, we let people know. And I've gone to my boys, and you've heard me say that, that I, don't, I didn't represent Christ well to you. And it's vital that we do. Titus 3.2 says, To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's vital that we do that. I'm going to stop here this morning. There's a couple more we're going to cover, but we'll save those for next week. I would just like you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. And while you do, how are you doing? As a leader in the church, are you equipped? Do you feel equipped to teach the word of Christ? Could you take a new believer and disciple them, open God's word with them, and show them how to grow in their relationship with God? It's vital that we have that because we have a baton in our hand, and we are responsible to pass that baton on to the next generation. We cannot afford to drop the baton. The baton is the gospel the gospel of Christ. We teach that word. We live that word in a very serious way. God is going to hold us accountable. And yes, we live in a world that is so tolerant about anything and everything. But there's some things that God is not too tolerant about. And he's going to call us to account. We hope you've enjoyed today's message like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.